Well, I wondered if we were doing another song, but I saw all the musicians sneak out the corner there, so I thought, well, are they doing it a cappella, or here we are. Well, good morning. You know, it's Super Bowl Sunday, in case you didn't know. The uh, Carolina Panthers are playing the Denver Broncos, and so I have a question for you. What is the most exciting play in football? Had you, had you thought of it like that? What's the most exciting? Is it a touchdown for your team? Huh? The Hail Mary, you think? How many think the Hail Mary? The most exciting thing. I got an idea to put out there. I think the most exciting play in football is the fumble. Because <laughs> you haven't planned for it. You don't know it's coming. You don't know why it's going to happen. It's not what you expected. The game suddenly has taken an unexpected twist. And everybody suddenly pulls together, forgets what they were doing, and focuses on being a team with a common goal. Get the ball. Right? And uh, so everybody's uh, all working together. And when the ball is loose after the fumble, you know, anything could happen. Well, our deacons met last Sunday. And um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure why you're laughing right there, but <laughs> deacons, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to set you up quite like that. But, you know, they voted. They said, we have fumbled around long enough. And we finally got the ball back in our hands. And it is time to move forward. It is time to do something. So yes, let's move forward with Tom Matlock, our architect, and uh, get our plans together. And let's plan on moving this summer, all of us off this campus in Dana Point to our, our uh, campus in San Juan so that we can get as much work done here as possible to do all the demo, demolition that needs to be done, uh, all the grading, all the infrastructure, uh, lengthen the parking lot so that there's more parking on grade, and uh, get a couple of our ministry buildings up and get back here as soon as we can. And uh, so uh, they voted that direction, and they, so this is good news for Team South Shores that says the ball is firmly back in our hands, and now it's time to do something much more boring, run the ball down the field and score a touchdown. And uh, so we've done the fumble, let's move the, field, the ball down the field and score and win. So uh, we'll be bringing you more good news along that direction, but I wanted to share that with you. All right, so we're in the study of the book of John, and so I invite you to turn to the book of John with me. We are listening in on Jesus' final thoughts and instruction to his disciples shortly before he's taken from them. So that's why we have entitled this series, Before I Go, because Jesus is saying the things he really wants his disciples to remember and to hang on to as they face a hostile world and without him physically being present. And John uh, has 21 chapters in, it, in our Bible, and uh, John doesn't say a word in there about Jesus' first 30 years. And John 1 to 12 takes up the three years of Jesus' ministry where he's gathering together the disciples, he's starting to teach, starting to preach, starting to do miracles, uh, arguing with the religious leaders, and that takes up the first 12 chapters. Chapters 13 to 19 all happen within a 24-hour period. From the feast of the Passover all the way through that night when he was arrested, he was crucified the next morning, he's dead and buried before that 24-hour period is over. And uh, so a third of the book of John happens in just one day. John 20, of course, happens three days later when he's resurrected. And John 21 has been added to the book of John telling how the disciples, Peter said, I'm going fishing. And uh, just kind of, you know, 
get back to what I'm used to. And the six other disciples said, we're going with you. And Jesus showed up on their fishing venture and uh, redirected them back onto the ministry that they were supposed to be about. So we're in chapter 16, John 16 today, starting verse 16, which are the last recorded words of Jesus with his disciples um, before he's arrested. And he's gathered them around to give them encouragement and instruction. So we're breaking into the story at a point where the disciples are confused. Now, that might be because they're all men, or it might be because Jesus spoke in figures of speech, and um, they just didn't get it. So they're anxious about their future. They have this sense that their life is about to take a dramatic turn, which they're right. And they don't know, but this is their final and their graduation all at the same time. Because their teacher is going to be arrested and then put to trial and death that, night, that day and then the next day. And school is no longer going to be in session. So Jesus is explaining himself. He thinks very clearly to the disciples, and he gives them three huge gifts. And they're the same three gifts that he would offer to you and to me that I want us to look at today. Let's look at John 16, verse 16. He said, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, I don't get it. What is this that he says to us? A little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know, we don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Well, yes. So the disciples are confused, wondering about their future. And it wasn't Jesus' way to just to come out and explain things in plain English to them. But he could have said it like this, I'll be arrested tonight and crucified tomorrow. The devil and his power brokers will, of this world are going to celebrate because they think they've won against the threat that I have posed to them. You will be crushed and afraid. And you'll go into hiding because you think you've lost. But really, I'm fulfilling God's plan that he purposed from, beginning, from the beginning before the foundations of the world. And it's a good thing because he promised to send a savior to sacrifice his life for sin. And that's what I'm doing here. On Sunday, your grief will turn to great rejoicing. And suddenly the power brokers and the devil will be on the defensive because I will come back to this earth and the grave will not be able to hold me. I'll return uh, to you over and over to encourage you over the next 40 days, but it'll be different than now where we're together 24-7. I'll just show up without invitation or expectation and just be with you at key moments in your life. And during that time, I will quell your fears and I'll dispel your doubts and I'll reconfirm your commission to be my witnesses in this world. I'll say, meet with you one last time to say goodbye. And then shortly after that, the Holy Spirit will come upon all of my followers and empower them with boldness and courage, opportunity, joy, and peace. There will be persecution from the world, sometimes even severe, but greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Well, Jesus didn't say it like that. Here's what he said, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, 
and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus gives three huge gifts that night, and the first one he gave them was the gift of joy. The gift of joy. Now, we tend to use happiness and joy as synonyms, but they can be quite different because one comes from our circumstances and the other originates directly from the Spirit of the living God. Happiness is conditioned by and often dependent on what's happening to me. I mean, if people treat me kindly, if things are going well in my life, then I'm happy. If circumstances aren't favorable, then I am unhappy. Joy, by comparison, is a gift that God, from God. It transcends the events and disasters that may lambast God's people. It's a divine dimension of living that's not driven by circumstances. So this past Sunday, I don't know if you remember, a week ago it was raining, and uh, after the deacons met, then I went and I jumped on an airplane to go do some of my reserve duty. I landed in Denver because I go to uh, the Colorado Springs to, to the Air Force Academy. And it was snowing when I landed in Denver, so I carefully made my way down to Colorado Springs. I passed about five accidents where must have been California drivers who don't know how to drive in the snow, and um, I went up the snowy hill and got into lodging. I hadn't been there 15 minutes, and my boss texts me and says, the base is closed because of weather. I said, good news. I'm here. I'm in lodging. I'll see you tomorrow. He said, no, no, tomorrow will be a snow day. It's going to snow all night. The plows will be working. We don't want your car in the way. All the offices are closed. All the stores and shops are going to be closed. Don't go anywhere. Do you have any food? (laughs) Well, I had a few little healthy things with me. I went back to the lodging office, and they had a little, little bit of food, and I found Hot Pockets. Well, if you've ever heard Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, talk about hot pockets, you know to avoid those. So I went back and I texted my boss, I'll be fine. And I avoided the hot pockets. But he said, well, just be ready, but tomorrow's a snow day. So I got up, I got dressed, I got ready, and I waited. Nothing happened all day long. Tuesday morning, he said, still another snow day. Just be ready. I got dressed, I waited, nothing happened. Wednesday, I get up in the morning, I got ready. He said, see you at 9.30. So for two days and two hours, I was on active waiting status. It was not my idea. I had lots of work I wanted to get done. So fortunately, I had my computer, and I had a whole list of messages we're going to be working on and places we're going. We're going to finish John, head into the book of Exodus. And so I, I, I used the time wisely, but in other words, left to myself, I was off track. You understand? I've, it's never happened before where I've just had two days by myself. I mean, and there wasn't even a maid to show up, you know, to interrupt the day. I finally had to walk outside just to say, there, there must be somebody. <laughs> besides me, but only found the clerk over at the lodge. Well, joy doesn't, isn't dependent on our circumstances. The Hebrew word means to leap or spin around with pleasure. Now, Baptists might not recognize that, but to me that sounds a lot like dancing, you know, to spin around and to leap with pleasure. Uh, the word in the New Testament, it means, it refers to gladness, bliss, and celebration. So, you know, Jesus promised his disciples they were going to have joy when they hear the good news about Jesus, and their hearts were going to rejoice when they got to see him face to face. Well, we've been given this gift of God's word, 
And so I went looking this week, since I had plenty of time, actually listened to the whole book of John out loud. It takes less than two hours. And um, where we find good news, or where we find joy in God's Word, here's what I learned. God is joyful. He's joyful. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. You don't see the verse. With loud singing. I don't know if you practiced some of that this morning. With loud singing. That's why I love to sit in the front because nobody turns around and looks at you, you know, when you sing loud. And uh, he's saying God is singing loud when he sees you. He's so excited about you. And Isaiah 65, 18 says, Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Now, from what I know of the history of Jerusalem, I think God must be talking about the new Jerusalem that's still to come, of all this joy He's going to have. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. God delights in His children, and when we recognize God is joyful, we will be drawn to Him. It's just fun to be around somebody who is joyful, enthusiastic, full of life, having fun. I mean, God is not some distant critic keeping score, easily angered, just waiting for us to mess up so He can unleash His fury. He's not a grouchy old man, which is men a choice. You don't have to pick. Gordon McDonald said when he was called as a pastor, he looked around his church. He had a lot of guys that were older than him. And he, one at a time, as he studied their lives, he realized every one of the guys in this church that's older than I am has unrealized dreams or, you know, a broken heart. He's disappointed about things and he's angry and if not moved already towards bitterness. And then he said, then I looked at my own life and I realized I've put those same railroad tracks through my heart to go to the very same place. I said, I don't want to be like that. Well, God's not like that. And men, you don't have to be either. God created us to be a delight. He finds great joy in you. He exalts over you in happy song. Well, our joy increases as we worship God. We come together like we are right now, and we choose, I'm going to worship God. In fact, the Westminster Confession, which originally was formulated in 1647 by some good Presbyterians trying to capture what was the Bible all about, and they stated, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We have been designed to respond to God, a joyful God in worship through both reverence and in rejoicing. Psalm 66, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come crying, I mean cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praise to you. They sing praises to your name. Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. When we gather together like this on Sundays, we want our worship to be joyful and sincere and reverent and upbeat and fun. And we're joining together to praise and to revere God and to rejoice in His goodness and in His blessings in our life. And joy flourishes in our hearts and in our lives. I mean, you didn't come to church to feel bad afterwards, did you? Well, I hope not. So these are both are kind of vertical. We're realizing God is joyful and we come to worship Him. 
Some of the other ideas might be more horizontal, but let me give you some. To share the Lord's joy by connecting with other people. To connect with other believers. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. To connect with others. We need each other to rejoice. I mean, joy can be more infectious than a common cold. And, you know, as I connect with you, you connect with me, our joy overflows. We provide a lot of opportunities here at church for people to connect with others. Sunday school classes, Bible studies, uh, ministry areas that are doing certain things. So don't just be a pew sitter. If you're saying, well, I'm waiting for somebody to ask you. Well, then I'm asking you right now. Join into something that you'd say, I would have a lot of fun with that. But to sit back and say, well, I'm going to wait for somebody to ask me. Step forward, step up, do something fun, connect with other people, get in one of the growth groups or service opportunities and rejoice with others. Here's another idea to increase your joy. Joy abounds when a new person comes to Jesus. Joy abounds when a new person comes to Jesus. When you have the opportunity that your life was used by God to introduce somebody else to Jesus Christ, you have great joy. Well, Jesus told three stories in Luke 15. All of them are lost and found stories, back to back to back to make a point. There's a lost sheep that the shepherd goes looking for and finds and comes home. There's a lost coin that a woman turns her house upside down to find her her coin that's lost. There's a lost son that a dad sits on the porch and grieves and waits and hopes and prays and waits and waits and his son finally comes home. Luke 15 says, when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Jesus saying that's God's part. He's that shepherd. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven than over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Verse 10 just so I tell you, he's talking about the, uh, that uh, God is the woman who cleans her whole house to find the lost coin. Just so I tell you, there is a joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He's the father sitting on the porch, Luke 15, 31. He says to his older son, son, you're always with me, who the older brother was not happy that his kid brother came home. All that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead. He's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. Jesus died for the lost. He rejoices every time somebody invites him into their heart to be their Savior. And your joy will increase if you share Jesus with somebody. So I'm not trying to induce guilt, but make a list. People you know, people you love, people you say, I wish they knew Jesus. Start figuring out how to how to bring Jesus into the conversation or to invite him to church. You know, Easter's coming. It's March 27. So it could wait for Easter, but it doesn't have to. You could bring him with you any Sunday. But make a list and to start to say, God, use me to invite other people to walk with Jesus. Another way to increase your joy is give your problems to the Lord and live in his joy. Christians can experience joy because it's a gift from Jesus, even in the midst of intense sorrow and loss. You know, we might lose things. We might lose people or relationships. We never lose Jesus. He was arrested and tortured that night. Just before that happens, and he knows it's coming, he is sharing his joy. Why? 
tells us in Hebrews 2 that we are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He was looking past all of the pain of this world. He was looking to eternity in heaven, of being in God's presence, of having a relationship with you, and he's wanting you there. And he is choosing a great attitude. It was a choice. He wasn't looking at his current circumstances and all of the struggles that he was having or just about to have. It was a choice, and we too can choose joy. In fact, I read a little story about a guy named Matthew Henry. He was a Bible scholar in the 1700s, but he had a rough day, and he had a great perspective. He was accosted by robbers, and they took everything he had. Now, if you had that experience and went home and wrote something in your diary, what would you write? Say, how, how unfair life is. I was plucked like a pigeon by the robbers today. That's not what he said. Look what he says. He, he wrote this. Let me first be thankful because I've never been robbed before. <laughs> That's pretty good. Second, I'm thankful because although they took my wallet, they didn't take my life. Third, I'm thankful that although they took my all, it wasn't very much. <laughs> and fourth, I'm thankful because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed others. Well, that's a great attitude. I mean, I did, wouldn't have thought of any of those four uh, myself, so we just got to keep growing in our faith, I guess, because the only way to have an attitude like that is to release our problems to the Lord to say, God, I'm going to give these to you. I'll do my best on them, but give me your guidance. Give me your peace. Give me your joy, because God's in charge of our joy. Jesus' brother, James, said it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, come on, true confessions, all humility aside, who does that? Anybody? Trouble comes your way and you say, yeah! <laughs> count it all joy when you have trials of various kinds. I don't either. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance, and steadfastness will have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives it generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. I mean, this takes a conscious decision to even think that direction, doesn't it? And we are commanded to work on it. We can't manufacture joy. But we can choose to receive this gift and give our problems to the Lord. Joy, you know, is spelled J-O-Y, Jesus, others, and then you, and it's a choice. And Jesus promised his friends joy. He said, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy, my joy from you, your joy from you. Second gift Jesus gave his disciples that night was the gift of prayer. He gave them direct access to God. He gave them permission to speak directly to God the Father. They didn't have to go through a priest or go to the temple. They could just talk directly to God and use his name. Now, you've probably done that a, a time or two, haven't you? You said to somebody, well, go talk to so-and-so and tell him I sent you. Tell him I told you to call. In other words, you're saying, use my name to get an in with these. And Jesus is saying, use my name to get your in with the Father. He said, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. This is asking a favor versus asking a question. They'd been with him for three years. They'd asked lots of questions. He's saying, you've never asked for a favor. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
I mean, this phrase, in my name, occurs four times in this goodbye talk from Jesus. Jesus is committed to those he loves, and he says, I've got a gift for you. You can have direct access to God. Now, I have a gift uh, to give away today. This is a, a Starbucks card. Who wants it? Come and get it. Who wants it? Come and get it. <laughs> Hurry. Yeah, Jerry. Oh, Jerry. Uh, you weren't too serious about that. You had the advantage sitting right on the front. Did Bill push you? He didn't say, here, go get it, honey, did he? Okay, good. Uh, what did you have to do to receive the gift? First, you had to hear the offer. Second, you actually had to believe it was sincere and, uh, and, and it was really being offered. And then you had to do something out of the ordinary, didn't you? You had to get up in the middle of a sermon, walk down in front of God and everybody, and to say, okay, I'm going to get that. Now, just for fun, I've given some of those to college kids, like Pastor Rob, uh, Klotz's daughter, when she's going off to school at Seattle Pacific. So I pulled out of my wallet. I had three cards. I said, I don't know which of these has been used, but you can pick one. And she did. So she picked one. She went down to Starbucks and had 17 cents on it. Okay. <laughs> This has more than that, Jerry. You can, you can take the doctor and go enjoy, have a little date, okay? But prayers like that. Jesus said, ask. Ask my Father. In fact, he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who rece asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks to him, it will be opened. Which of you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? And the answer is None. He said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask? James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. So to spend it on your passions. So he's saying we need to ask. Get away and say, God, you give your gift, you say, come and ask. I'm not just asking for stuff for this world and stuff to make life easier. I want to ask God, how do I let you be glorified in my life? How do I do what you want? How do I be filled with your peace and your joy? And people will do all kinds of things to gain God's favor and receive his blessing, especially when they're in great need or in extreme danger. I mean, have you ever prayed a prayer? God, I'll do anything you ask if you just, and fill in the blank. Anybody? Come on. Yeah, we've prayed like that. Now, ironically, People are willing to do these great things in return for God's blessing, things God hasn't asked for and doesn't want you to do. They're unwilling, though, to do the one small thing that God says, and that is come to him humbly and pray. Why? Because we'd rather earn it. We'd rather earn it. We're operating on a merit basis, not on a grace basis. I mean, one person described it as using the wrong country's currency. I, I've probably lived a sheltered life, but every country I've gone to, I have found they like American dollars. I could spend the currency of America anywhere in the world that I've gone, and they will take American dollars for their products, and they always give you change from that country. So I have this whole bag full of change that I can't take down to, uh, you know, Albertsons or Ralph's and get important stuff like ice cream or, you know, other important things. Uh, they, they don't want the currency from that other country there. And the currency of this world is works. It's merit. It's getting what you deserve. And the current of, currency of God's kingdom is grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's kind of like going to the South Sea Island somewhere where the economic system is barter and livestock 
and trying to buy things with little green pieces of paper. They would laugh at you. Then they would eat you. <laughs> because you're using the wrong currency. God wants us to come to him in prayer and ask. And that requires humility on our part. It means acknowledging, God, I need you. And we're dependent on you. But we'd rather try to earn our own way. We're kind of proud of ourselves. People sometimes think, oh, I'm not going to ask. God already knows what I need. So if he cares, then he'll give it to me. Why bother asking? And it misses the point. The purpose of prayer isn't just to get what we want. What matters most is our relationship with God. The purpose of prayer is for us to be blessed by God and to be a blessing to God in such a way that God is honored and glorified and we grow spiritually. James said every good, and every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. And when we pray and God answers our prayers, He receives the glory and we grow in our faith and our hope and our love and our understanding of God. That's the point. Not just getting what we want. God wants a closer, more trusting relationship with you. Have you been asking him? Are you trusting him? Have you come to God in Jesus' name? I'm not trying to induce guilt. I'm suggesting you can start praying more intentionally this week to be able to look back and say, wow, I'm praying more. I'm spending more time thinking about God and, and, and asking God things and talking with God and delighting in the time that I spend with him because God certainly looks forward to and delights in those times with you. Jesus said, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into this world, and now I am leaving this world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, Ah, now we are, now you're speaking plainly. You're not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things. You don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you've come from God. The third gift that Jesus gave the disciples besides joy and access to God in prayer was the gift of peace. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Do you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? We're going to be talking about it in a few weeks. The breaking point for Jesus was not the humility of being stripped naked or, or tortured or hung on the cross. The breaking point for Jesus was when the sin of the world was placed upon him and God himself, God the Father in heaven, turned away. And Jesus prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was all alone. He says here, I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus gives a peace in our hearts that's not connected to the circumstances going on in our lives. This world is in trouble. It's not at peace. It's broken. It's sick. It has no hope without Jesus. And worse, it doesn't recognize that. It's running away from Jesus. And the world will never reach the place of no conflicts, no difficulties, no chaos. It will never happen. But Jesus gives the peace, gift of peace to those who love him right in the middle of your chaos. 
In fact, earlier in the same evening in John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace comes when we trust God, when we place our lives in his hands. When we pray, when we commit our circumstances and our situation to God in prayer, when we thank him for what he's done and is doing and will do, then we experience peace. So to experience peace, we need to fix our thoughts on Jesus. What occupies your thoughts today? The touchdown? The fumble? Or can we stay focused on Jesus? God's fully aware of your situation. You can trust him with everything. And Jesus generously gives this gift of peace even in the middle of the storm. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And the disciples here are really caught in a perfect storm because they are caught right between their own agenda and what the devil and his evil schemes are hoping to do to Jesus and God's plan to save the world. And they're right in the middle of that. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Because in the world you're going to have terror tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. So place your faith and trust in Jesus. God's in control. I mean, look what he offers to those who love him. Joy that the world can't understand and prayer access to God and peace. Shall we pray? God, we thank you for your many gifts to us and for your love for us. I thank you we could celebrate around your table today and to remember what you have given so that we might live. You gave your broken body. Your blood was poured out. And we love you. Thank you so much for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.